I hope those are helpful uh, for you to kind of put it all back together. I know sometimes it's hard to kind of jump in and see where we're at. Uh, redemption is a word that we don't use a ton in today's world. In fact, many of us, if we would ask, what, what does redemption mean? We may think about coupons, you know, redeeming certain coupons. And although it's helpful to save a few dollars here and there, that's not exactly the, the way that we see it used in Scripture, not exactly the great theological word that we see here. The word redemption actually means to buy back someone or something, uh, to deliver someone or something that is being ransomed. In your hand out there, it was buy back, if you're wondering what the, uh, the difference was as we kind of go across there. So uh, in, in the contemporary way, we, we see this, uh, um, here, I'll show you there. I think it was one over, the buy back there. Uh, uh, and one more, there you go. All right, so, so uh, in a contemporary way, we, we see this with ransomware. I know we see that on the, the news a lot, that, that this certain server or this certain group, this hospital group, or, or this person has been infected with ransomware. And what that does is it takes control of your computer system. There is nothing you can do. You can't use it anymore. And they are holding it as ransom. Uh, you, 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 until you pay the redemption price, there is no redeeming your system. Uh, they will keep control of it, and you can't use it. Uh, and, and so it's being held hostage. Uh, the biblical definition is, is very similar to that idea. Uh, it, it's to buy back someone. Uh, it, it's to buy back us. It's what Jesus did on the cross for us. Uh, we had the ransomware, which is sin, which has infected all of us through the fall of Adam and Eve. The, the very first sin in the Bible has affected all of us. And that ransomware, that sin that is in us, could only be redeemed in one way. It could only be bought, we could only be bought back by one person, and that is Jesus Christ. We need to be delivered from that ransomware, from that sin that, that held us captive to death, that, that we were going to be eternally separated from Jesus Christ, that, that that ransomware, there was nothing we could do about that sin. It, there was nothing we couldn't, couldn't work hard enough. We couldn't do enough good stuff. Uh, we couldn't be good enough. To, to make that without that redemption price. And so we see in these few verses we're going to kind of read. So first Titus 2, 4, uh, it's talking about Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And Colossians 1, 14, which we just read right before that uh, this morning, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we've seen, seen two times here. One, the forgiveness of sins. And then we, we saw that we were redeemed from lawlessness, from, from sin again. And then finally, Ephesians 1, 7 says how we are redeemed. So if, if we look at that, it, it, we pull it up. It says, uh, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We see it so clearly how we are redeemed. We know we are redeemed, we are bought back from sin, but we see in Ephesians 1, 7 how we are redeemed, and it's by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Jesus Christ. So as we go through this last chapter, this final chapter of the book of Ruth that we've been going through this month, we're going to see God's plan of redemption played out in the lives of Boaz and Ruth. We're also going to see God's even greater plan of redemption, the redemption of mankind to come through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you that we get to, to look at your word, to study it. Uh, Lord God, may, may you be the one that speaks through me, not myself, but I pray that your word comes out, Lord, that, that we talk about the word of God, the, the living and active scripture that has 
the ability to, to penetrate our souls, our hearts, to change us from the inside out, to, to make us a new creation, to save us, Lord. And God, as we, as we study this plan of redemption, this plan of buying us back uh, from, from, the, from the pit of hell, from, from death, God, this beautiful plan that you're, that you're working, that you're orchestrating divinely and sovereignly. God, may, may we learn more and more about your love for us and just your, your power and your majesty. We love you. Amen. So we're going to discuss two overarching points uh, that are played out in this chapter. And the first is Jesus is our sacrificial redeemer. Jesus is our sacrificial redeemer. And you may wonder why I use the word Jesus in both of these points whenever we're talking about Ruth and Boaz. And you're going to see clearly uh, the parallels between uh, Jesus and Boaz throughout this providential plan. So let's go ahead and just jump right into Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. And read this first verse here. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So we ended in chapter 3 with Ruth and Naomi anxiously waiting this interchange. So, so they're, they're sitting there like, what is going to happen here? We, we saw Ruth has, in essence, proposed to, to Boaz, Boaz and said, hey, I want you to be my redeemer. I want you to marry me. I want you to continue the line of Elimelech, my, my deceased husband's de- who deceased his father, who is also deceased. I want you to continue our family line. I want you to kind of move forward. And Boaz says, I'll do it, but there's a redeemer closer than I am. And so now here we are, and we've been waiting for this. Boaz sits down, and this is the place where, where, where business is conducted. The, 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 the gate was, was the place where, where the elders of the city all met together. And we see here that Boaz is, is a very noble elder, that the people know who he is. Uh, we see in Proverbs 21, 23, this played out. Uh, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Uh, those who were important of nobility oftentimes would meet and would do transactions here. And Boaz is one of these elders who is known. Moving back to verse 1, we see here in the middle that, we, that there's this coincidence, right, that most people may look at and say, no. Oh. So he goes, he sits down, and voila, here comes the Redeemer. Obviously, we know this isn't just a coincidence. It is God sovereignly orchestrating this whole interaction here. And so this Redeemer, this next of kin, the person that had the right to redeem the land of Naomi, of Elimelech, and to, to redeem Ruth, comes by. And obviously, we know that God is providentially working. Something that's really missed in our English here, though, when he says, turn aside, friend, uh, that sounds pretty cordial, but actually what he says is Mr. So-and-so, we'll call him. It's completely anonymous. We never see the name of this quote-unquote redeemer who doesn't redeem, uh, as we're going to get into. And so we don't know why there isn't the name mentioned. Maybe it was they didn't want to embarrass him, whoever the, you know, the writer didn't want to, put, to bring that out. But, but in all honesty, it was probably because they didn't want him, his name was not to be remembered because he is not the one who redeems Ruth and the land. So, so just think, turn aside friend means... Mr. So-and-so, have a seat, right? Uh, it, it, it's this anon- anonymous. It continues to remain anonymous to this day. And then we get to verse 2. It says, And he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So ten witnesses have been gathered. Uh, Boaz grabs ten witnesses along with this Redeemer. 
And it's important to note whenever it says that Naomi is selling this land, uh, there are some debates over how that worked out. Uh, without going into a ton of detail, Leviticus 25, 25 through 30 says that the land would have to stay in the family if at all possible. So there would be a redeemer who would take that land. And in Numbers 27, it says that the deceased man could pass on his land to a son, a daughter. Uh, we even see uh, an uh, uncle, a brother, and uh, another re- near relative, but we don't see widow uh, there. Uh, you know, whether that, you know, we don't know what the cultural uh, movement there was, but whether this personal possession of the land was really hers or not, what we know is that she either owns it outright and is unable to take care of it, unable to, to, to truly uh, work the land, or that they maybe subcontracted the land before they left to go to Moab. And it needs redeemed, it needs bought back because somebody else is using it while they were gone. So we're not sure exactly how that works, but we do know what we do know is that this land needs redeemed. Somebody needs to step in and take over. So Ruth, uh, if we could move to verse 4 here, it says, So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, if, but if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then comes another twist in the plot here. He Boaz offers the right of redemption to this guy, and we're all assuming, I mean, this is the story of Ruth. And, you know, Boaz has been, you know, looked at as this really good guy, and you know, anybody that's kind of being drawn into the love story here, uh, you, you despise those last four words of, of, of that verse right there. If we look at verse 4, he says what? I will redeem it. I will redeem it. Okay, that was four. Just making sure I was right there. So, 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 so you're like, no, no, this cannot happen. This guy, Mr. So-and-so, is not who's supposed to be redeeming Ruth. It's supposed to be Boaz. You know, what is happening? This, this whole story is unraveling. It's falling apart. Uh, but then comes verses 5 and 6, and Boaz says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order for, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Note, note that Boaz was shrewd, but he wasn't being deceptive. The whole truth was put forth. It just happened sequentially. Why, why he did that, we're not completely sure, but we know that it does work to his advantage. Uh, Mr. So-and-so, once Ruth is brought up, and all of a sudden, hey, it's not just free land. You know, everybody likes free stuff, right? Just take, just, you just, here it is, or maybe it just cost a little bit. Okay, you got to buy it back. Okay, but this, but it's going to add to your inheritance. This seems like a great idea. This guy is fiscally sound. He is, his portfolio is going to expand. His, his real estate market is going to go up. And then, oh, I have to have another child, which is going to mean that my stuff and this, the, and this land I acquire now is going to be split more ways than what I already have. Now there's a cost involved. This isn't just an easy transaction. And so he bounces out. He taps out. He asks for the relief pitcher to come in. All right, okay, no, can't, can't do this. And everybody else is like, whoa, yeah, we're all happy because we were like, Mr. So-and-so, I mean, we know who you are. We, obviously, we don't want you to be with Ruth because we don't know your name. And so, you know, what's his reason for bowing out, though? It's because he doesn't want to impair his own inheritance. It's selfish. It says, no, I'm not going to think of anybody else right now. I'm going to think of me and mine. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to make sure my family is, is the richest, is, that my portfolio is the, the, the best. My retirement account doesn't matter if anybody's in need around me. I'm going to make sure that I take care of me, right? And obviously, we don't know his name because of that. Uh, there is a cost involved, so he bows out. Not Boaz, though. 
Listen to the outcome of this in the following verses, 7 through 10. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to, to, to Kilian and Malan and Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Uh, obviously, the custom in this verse, in verse 7, was not still going on at the time of the writing of this book. Uh, most historians, uh, if you talk to Jewish historians, they'll say that they think Samuel wrote this during the time of David's reign. And you'll see at the end uh, that, that the genealogy goes through David. It doesn't get to Solomon, so it makes sense that Solomon would not have been born yet when this book was written. So we're still only looking at a few generations after this occurred that this book was written. Boaz fulfills his promise of redemption here. He, he buys back the land for the clan of Elimelech and takes Ruth as his wife. He's willing to pay the price that the other redeemer would not pay. And finally, in verses 11 and 12, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, which is a place in Bethlehem there, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So the elders bless Boaz because they see his selflessness here, that he's willing to buy back Ruth, that he's able to, 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 to marry this Moabite. Again, we've talked about multiple times throughout this that the Moabites were not a lovable people in this time period. That Ruth, yes, she has left her people. She has come and converted to being an Israelite. Uh, she's been looked at as an Israelite by Naomi and Boaz, but she still carried that, that, that ethnic Moabite. Uh, she, you know, and so many in Israel would have been like, ah, I don't know. And we don't know if that maybe had something to do with this, with this redeemer saying, ah, I don't, I don't know. And maybe he just used the other things as an excuse that there maybe was some problems there. But we see God grafting in the Gentiles, even right here. He, he, here, here comes a Moabite woman to meet with Boaz. And we're going to see, and we've talked about before, Boaz's mother was Rahab, another Gentile who was grafted in as well. And they're all, they're all going to lead to Jesus Christ. And we see him, that we see the elders bring up Rachel and Leah. And it's interesting that they bring up Rachel and Leah because they both were barren at some point in their lives. Obviously, Leah had more children than Rachel. Uh, Rachel was more barren than, than Leah was. Now, Judah, uh, if we're looking where Boaz comes through this line, he comes from Leah. Uh, but she still had a moment where, had a time period where she was barren. And we know that Ruth was married for 10 years and didn't have any children. So Ruth was also barren for this 10 years. And so we see the elders praying here. God bless them with a child. I know that she was married for 10 years and didn't have any children, but God, may you supernaturally bless these people. And we'll see in a moment whether this prayer is answered. I know we watched that video, so you kind of already had a little spoiler alert. Uh, before we move on, though, I want us to, to take a few moments to look at the sacrifice involved in redemption here. This Redeemer passes up this opportunity, much like many people in the world today, right? People are willing to accept something free, accept a gift, as long as it doesn't cost them anything, as long as it doesn't change their life, change what they do, change, you know, change what they like, what they don't like, 
you know, their obedience to whatever. If they, they're, they're able to still be the God of their own life and still run things. And yeah, you know, you want to give me a hundred bucks and there's no strings attached. I don't have to change anything. I don't have to quit doing this. I don't have to start doing this. Then I am in, right? But as soon as a cost is involved, they're out. Nah, nah, that's not worth it. I, don't, I want to be able to do what I want to do. I don't, you know, I don't care if there's a free gift or not. Would that explain how you respond to the gospel? Oh, you know what? A, a get out of hell free card sounds awesome. Check me in. You know, I don't, I don't want to go to hell. That's great. Okay, I'll take that free gift. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. But then you see that true salvation requires you to make Jesus the Lord of your life, to acknowledge him as the Lord of your life, that, that, that it requires you to, to let go of the reins that you've been riding and hand them to Christ, that now it's his will and not your will be done. Uh, that it, it requires you to die to yourself and be born again, made a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The things you really like to do that aren't kosher, that aren't good, the sinful things you like to watch, uh, oh, you've got to hand, you got to repent. Repent means you, you turn away from the things of this world, and you turn toward Christ. That's not a work that you do, but it's a work that God does in you, but you have to make that decision. Okay, God, I don't want those things. I want you. Help me to do this, this thing, to, to turn from this, and my life is yours. In order to be redeemed, you must be born again, Jesus said in John chapter 3. The cost is dying, and that little cost, it's a free gift, but it does cost you your old life. That life must die. It must be buried, and you must be resurrected a new creation. God does all that work. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that any man can boast. So we're not saved because we do this and do this and do this, do this. We're saved because we allow God to do all those things in us. You see, Boaz was willing to step up and deliver Ruth and her family. He didn't care there was a cost involved. He was willing to pay it. And Jesus did the same for you and me. He paid the ultimate price, the ultimate cost on the cross. It required his shedding of blood that we saw in Ephesians 1-7. And the price of that that Jesus paid is the only way in which we may escape the flames of hell. And brothers and sisters, I pray that you spend some time thinking, thinking about, reflecting on the redemption of Christ, the payment that he paid on that cross for our sins, and whether you have truly been redeemed being redeemed doesn't mean I believe with my head and I acknowledge a couple of things. It believes that I have given my heart, my entire life, my entire being to Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. Have you truly believed in that Jesus Christ who died some 2,000 years ago on the cross that was raised from the dead? He lived a sinless life, and now we only are saved through belief in him and him alone. My friends, Jesus Christ is our sacrificial redeemer, and he is also our sovereign redeemer. Jesus is our sovereign redeemer. Let's start reading in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Verse 13 shows God's blessing of a child to the once barren Ruth. That prayer of the elders has been fulfilled. It's been answered. It's been answered. Don't miss, don't miss that miracle that God has just done here in a barren woman again. And 
The women also use this word redeemer to describe another. So we've seen there's Mr. So-and-so, the pseudo-redeemer, the false redeemer who kind of bows out, doesn't really do it. He was a redeemer by law, but he didn't step in. Then we have Boaz, who's the redeemer who steps in, who marries Ruth, who takes, takes the land of Elimelech and is sacrificial. But now we have another redeemer. This son that is born is called a redeemer to Naomi. And the term redemption here has a twofold meaning. The first is that this child brings her joy again. There's, there's an earthly redemption that she has. There's this, this, this bundle of joy is there for her to nurse and love. And second, there's hope for Naomi's family line. It continues on. It looked like it was done. She lost her husband. She lost both of her sons. Her, the line, family line of Elimelech is gone. And now there is redemption. The name will continue to live on through this child. And then the women make this wild statement here in verse 15. It says, For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. I mean, this was the perfect Jewish family had seven sons. So seven was the number of completion, right? The week has how many days? Seven. Seven is the number of God in many, many aspects. Uh, And so to have seven sons was a sign of, of strength in a patriarchal society like they had. It was like, don't mess with that dude. He's got seven sons. We, uh, we, we see that, that in, in the Psalms that, that they have a quiver of sons, and that was a, a sign of strength of the family. And these women said, hey, Ruth is worth more than that. She's even better than having seven sons. I mean, that was a huge, just nice statement for them to make of Ruth. Then we get to verses 16 and 17. It says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's so fitting that the author of this account, be it Samuel or whoever, uh, starts this whole account off with Naomi's desolation. Right? I mean, Naomi has just lost everything she thought. Right? Her husband has passed away. Her two sons have passed away. Uh, they're in a foreign land. She's alone with her two daughters-in-law, but they're Moabites, and so she's like, what am I going to do? We're going to be destitute. And yet it ends with the joy of Naomi. She has left, or she's gone from empty and bitter to full and joyful. It's also very unique that the women of the neighborhood are involved in naming this child. There's nowhere else in Scripture where we see this interaction, where, where we see the neighborhood, the women of the neighborhood, helping name a child. No doubt Ruth and Boaz were part of this naming as well, but it's interesting that the women take part of this name. It seems like there's a Bethlehem-wide understanding that there's something special here. Uh, this, this once barren Ruth is now having a child. Uh, Boaz, who waited forever for marriage, is now married. He's this great, respected man of the city. There, there's just a lot of miracles going on here. There's a lot of supernatural, providential moves of God, and there's something bigger that's going on through the lineage of this child than what we see on the surface. And they name him Obed, which uh, interestingly actually sounds like the Hebrew word for servant. Uh, and how prophetic would that be of the suffering servant to come forward? Then finally we get to verses 18 through 22. The genealogy of David is given here. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron, uh, Hezron fa- fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And many of you may wonder why I would preach through this book that was written some 3,000 years ago, plus years ago, and play it into Christmas. Like, why, why choose the book of Ruth 
as my, my Christmas sermon uh, series here through this. And obviously we've seen there's been a lot of parallels between Boaz and Jesus, and, but those could be any time of the year, right? Uh, but now we're going to really fully understand how, how, how much more apparent it comes that this book of Ruth is a Christmas book. It is a book that points completely to Christmas. It's all about Christmas. And so we're going to go through some genealogies. Um, me and Kevin are going to try to try to get this thing down here. So this is the genealogy we have listed here. I went one above, uh, which is Judah. So, so we see Perez first here. And Perez is the son of Judah, who is the son of Leah and Jacob, Jacob being Israel. So Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel to kind of take us back, uh, ba- back a couple of generations there. So we have Judah, and Judah through Tamar bears Perez. And, and Judah, I think that might start ringing a bell when you think about Jesus and Judah. If we look at the next slide, Revelation 5, 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Right? So here we see Jesus called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Next, we move down to Salmon. And Salmon we see mentioned in Matthew 1, 5. Uh, Salmon is the father of Boaz by Rahab. There we go again. Remember that? And then we're going to keep going here in a minute. So then Salmon has Boaz by Rahab, as we've seen in the book of Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth go on to have Obed, whose name means servant. Again, the suffering servant that we're going to see here later. And then we get to where? We get after Boaz and Obed. Obed, Here we are. Now we're at Jesse. And Jesse, we we see this prophetic about the Messiah in in two different verses in Isaiah. Isaiah 11.1. Stay with me here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And verse 10, moving on. In that day the root of Jesse, who who shall stand as a signal for, for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. These are prophetic messianic verses about someone who would come from Jesse. They all point to the coming Messiah. And finally, we get to David. So Ruth 4.22 said, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Uh, and we see, well, well how, does David and, how did David and Jesus end up together here? We go to Matthew 1.6, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And if we keep moving forward, if we keep following that, we get to Jesus finally after multiple generations after that. So if we continue this, we, we see that Jesus and we, is descended from David as far as the flesh is involved. We, we see that in a couple of scriptures here too. Romans 1-3, concerning his th- son, Jesus, right, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Why do you think it says according to the flesh there? Because Jesus has always existed. So he was descended from David according to the flesh. He was begotten, right? So, so he was begotten, but he was not created. He took on human flesh is what that means. Doesn't, Jesus wasn't created. Jesus has always existed. We just talked about this and in growth group this morning, our, our Sunday school. Uh, how amazing is that, that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit have always existed in the Trinity. But Jesus took on human flesh at Christmas. And we see that from the, the root of Jesse, why is it called the root of Jesse? How, wait a minute, if, if Jesse and David, he's called the root of David, the root of Jesse, if, if, if they are here, well, wh- the root, the root's what nourishes and feeds the tree. So why would Jesus be called the root of Jesse? Well, Jesus asked uh, when he was being questioned by the Pharisees, he answers them uh, he, uh, with a question. When they're trying to ask who he is, he says, well, tell me this, why did David 
call the Messiah his Lord, right? So, so what you, it doesn't make any sense. Wait a minute, how can that who comes after be superior? Be, because in, in that culture, if you were older, you, you were an elder, and you were respected, and that should still be in our culture too, but, but it doesn't always seem to play out that way, but that still should be it. But now here David is talking about this, this genera- generations and generations after and says, calls him Lord. And what that is is Jesus has always been. Jesus created David. He made, knit David together in his mother's womb. So see in Psalm 139, how amazing is that? So he is the root, meaning he is the nourisher and the sustainer of all life. He took on flesh related to David, right, down that lineage, but he was still 100% God. He was still the creator and sustainer of the universe. As we sang in that song again this week, right, even as that little baby lay, right, he's still holding the sun and the moon and the stars in their places. He is holding people on earth by gravity, He's keeping us from flying off into space and blowing up. He's holding us with the power of his word. He is the word who became flesh. How amazing is this? And I go into this detail to show how important this account is here. That if it wasn't for Boaz and Ruth, if it wasn't for God, for Jesus, supernaturally making all of this happen, uh, every, articulating every single detail here, Christmas would have never come. If it wasn't for Ruth and Boaz, we wouldn't have salvation. He was sovereignly working before his birth on earth, before he, he took on human flesh. He's sovereignly working here. He continued to sovereignly work while he was on earth, even as a baby, as we've talked about. Throughout his whole life, he continued to hold the earth with, it, with his power, and he continues to sovereignly work to this day. Christmas was no accident. Jesus Christ planned the redemption of mankind before the foundation of the world. He knew that man would sin and that they would need redeemed. They would need bought back from the power of sin and death. A price would need to be paid. As we consider that, that little baby lying in a manger, as, as we have just celebrated Christmas, as we think about this seemingly helpless child that was still 100% God and holding the universe together. As we continue to think about him, that he would go on to live a perfect life that we couldn't live. He, he didn't ever sin. He would, he would go on to die the death that you and I deserved. We deserved hell. We deserved death. And he took on our punishment on that cross. As we think about that little baby who would grow up and be pierced for our transgressions, our sins, crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53, 5, written 700 plus years before his birth. As we've discussed the definition of redemption at the beginning of this message, I pray that as we come to a close that we remember the benefits of this wonderful redemption. Through Jesus Christ's blood that was spilled on the cross for our sins, he took on the punishment that we have, if we, have, if we are in Christ, if we have, have repented of our sins, if we have died to our old self and been resurrected into a new self, I pray that everyone here has done that. If we have, there is a result of redemption I want us to go through at the end here. Number one, the result of our redemption through Jesus Christ is, number one, eternal life. Number one, eternal life. Well, okay, yeah, there, eternal life. Uh, number two, 
forgiveness and deliverance from sins. We, sin does not have to be our master. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to God, to righteousness. We don't have to continue in the sins that we have continued. Number, number three, the imputed righteousness from Christ is given to us. And these are big words here, but imputed righteousness means when God looks upon us, he sees the perfection of his son. Not our works, because our works are as filthy rags. No, no matter how hard we try, it's still not good enough. We, we won't make it. But Jesus Christ has given us his righteousness when we put our trust in him. And moving on, we are adopted as sons and daughters. Adoption as sons and daughters. Not only does he let us in heaven and take us out of of, uh, or take, take us away from what we deserve, which is hell, and say, okay, you're not going to go there. I'm going to keep you forever, eternally. He adopts us as sons and daughters. He desires a relationship with us. It's not one of these, oh, you can come in, but stay in the corner. I don't want to hear you say anything. No, he desires prayer. Even right now, we are adopted as sons and daughters if we have put our faith and our trust in God. He desires an intimate relationship with you. He wants you to pray to him daily, multiple times. Pray without ceasing, we see in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Right? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. We are adopted. We are now no longer the son of the devil, which if we are not a son of God, there is no middle ground. I know many may think there is, but we are either a son of God, little s son of God, not the son of God. We are the a son or daughter of God, or we are a son of the devil. And we have to make that choice. No choice is a choice to continue being a son of the devil. And five, peace and reconciliation with God the Father. When you have put your faith and your trust in God, God's not looking down at you with this judgmental glance, with a with finger pointed, saying, oh, you, you've disappointed me, you failed me again, no forgiveness this time. I know you've done that three or four times in the last week, you're done, I'm cutting you off. No, as, as Brother Jim talked about this morning, we are given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a seal of our salvation. We are an adopted son or daughter. As I've mentioned before, Lisette is my adopted daughter, and she will always be my daughter. Nothing she can do, no, nothing she can say will, will, will change that, right? She will always be. She has that seal, which is my last name. She is one of us, right? She will always be my daughter. That is how God treats us, my friends. He loves us. Believers, I pray that you live in the freedom and blessing that's been given to us in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we all are believers and that the result of redemption applies to all of us here, uh, that we know that we have eternal life with you, uh, that we know that we have forgiveness and deliverance from our sins, imputed righteousness from you, that we're adopted as sons and daughters of you, Lord God, and that we have peace with you. But God, some of us, if, if we don't know for sure, we haven't made that, that, that full I'm in. I'm all in. We've maybe given you a head nod, but we realize that we haven't died to our old self, that we haven't been born again. We are not a new creation. The old has not gone. We, we've tried to take you and add you to the mess that we already are. God, we cannot sow, a, like we can't put new wine in an old wine skin for it will burst, is what you said in the scripture. We can't, we can't just put you into our old life and not expect and expect things to go well. God, we must have a new wineskin to put the new wine in. We must have a new self, be born again, God. And you do all of that work. It's not by our work. 
You just require us to repent and turn from our sins, and you take the wheel, and you do everything from there, God. So, Lord God, I pray that if anyone here has not made that profession of faith, has not said, okay, I'm all in, God, that they do it today. Lord God, as we spend just a little bit just reflecting on your your wonderful glory and how great you are, I just pray that you help us to to think during this just time of silence here for a minute. Uh, Adam, would you mind to just play a little bit as he, okay, I, I, I'll, I'll do it here. Uh, as, as, I, as I think of this guitar and I just play just for a minute, I just pray that you help us to uh, be sure that we have truly placed our faith and trust in you. Let's have a moment of, of silence for just a little bit. Mm-hmm.